All right, wonderful worship in the Lord this morning. Say thank you to our leaders who've been on the stage all morning. Put your hands together and let's rejoice. It's always a great thing to worship the Lord with our voices. Now we turn our attention to the very Word of God itself and never forget that the act of preaching the Word is a high order of worship. It is worship to preach the Word. It is worship to listen to the Word preached. So set up straight, listen with both eyes this morning. If you're ready to rock and roll, say amen today. Amen. Our Bibles are open to Matthew chapter 3 this morning. Once again, Matthew chapter 3. If you're new, we're in a series of messages in the Gospel of Matthew, which is the first Gospel. And by the way, if you need a copy of God's Word, there's one in front of you in the pew rack. You'll find our text on page 758, 758. Uh, this series uh, that we're in currently is a series of messages on the birth narratives of Jesus and the early life and ministry of the Lord Jesus. It comprises the first four chapters of Matthew's gospel, and we'll be there for just a few more weeks before we then transition and move into the next section uh, of Matthew. In this day and time, we might call that Matthew season two, amen, and it's coming in just a few weeks once D now uh, is over. For today, we're in Matthew chapter 3. If you were here last week, we introduced the ministry and the message of John the Baptist, a man, of course, whom Jesus referred to as the greatest man who ever lived. John's mission, of course, was not to be the Messiah or act in the stead of the Messiah. The Bible makes it very clear he was not the light. He was not the promised Messiah, but he came to bear witness to the Messiah that all through the Messiah might believe and be saved. John was, of course, this wild man of the desert. He was actually born a son of privilege. His father was a, a, a temple priest there in Jerusalem, Zechariah, and it stands to reason that John the Baptist would have had a very similar rabbinic education to someone like the Apostle Paul, and so he'd been brought up in the right ways and sent to all the finest schools, but when it came time to fulfill his role, John turned his back on the wealth and the greed and the privilege of the religious establishment and clothed himself in a coat of coarse camel hair and cinched it together with a rough leather belt and went out into the hot Judean wilderness to preach a message summarized this way, repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. John fulfilled the prophetic role that Isaiah had uh, indicated in his prophet, a prophecy of Isaiah chapter 40. He would be the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make straight paths for him. In other words, John's role was to make a straight line to Jesus, what Spurgeon used to call a beeline. The role of every preacher is to make a beeline to Jesus, to make a beeline to the cross, regardless of the text of Scripture that you're using, and uh, make sure that you're preaching, sharing, teaching in such a way to make it clear. It's the old song we used to sing in church, make the message plain, make the message plain, Christ receiveth sinful men. And that's what John did. He preached the message clearly, simply, so as to remove any and all obstruction from people's spiritual visibility that they might see and respond to the Lord who was coming because judgment was coming. 
And John wanted to be clear, there is a way to avert the judgment. There is a way of escape. And you can find it by repenting of your sin and receiving the gift of everlasting life through the coming King of kings and Lord of lords. And that's what makes John the Baptist not only a hellfire and brimstone preacher, but a grace preacher. Because he preached a way of escape. We deserve judgment. But there is a way to find forgiveness. There is a way to find acceptance in the court of God through confession of sin. And so we preach that message, same message Jesus would preach when he burst forth on the scene. Repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. And interestingly, that didn't offend the majority of people. It did offend the minority, but it didn't offend the majority. The people responded overwhelmingly to the truth of the gospel. And they still do today uh, when we preach it lovingly and tenderly. And people want to be told the truth, and that's our responsibility. John told people the truth. They found that attractive, and the people responded overwhelmingly, as indicated here in verse 6. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. And it's that baptism that we really want to talk about this morning as we conclude this little two-part message on John the Baptist from Matthew's early chapters Baptism was the hallmark of John's ministry. That's a word in the Greek New Testament that means to dip or to submerge or to plunge under, to immerse, as we often say, and that's exactly what John did. His ministry always went to where the water was. There was much water there. So John took his ministry there. Why? Because people got into the water with him. Little dab wouldn't do you. As the old commercial used to say, if the little dab's all you needed, all you need is a cup. You don't need much water. Amen. But they got into the water. They went into the water. They came up out of the water, and John baptized them. We call him John the Baptist for that reason, right? Some tongue-in-cheek call him the Big Dipper. Amen. Because that's what he did. He immersed them in water, and that baptism symbolized, as we'll see in a moment, the gospel that that uh, was to be personified in Christ, in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Uh, but it also uh, was important because it symbolized the cleansing of sin, which was brought about not by the water, but by repentance and faith. Now, one thing that's obvious from the passage that we're going to look at here in just a moment is that Jesus himself was baptized. And uh, that's highly important, the primary focus of what we want to talk about today. In fact, the baptism of Jesus was the crowning work of the life and ministry of John the Baptist. Can you imagine being the one to get to baptize the Lord Jesus Christ? How honorific that must have been. And yet John does it, and here's how Matthew describes it here, as this young adult Jesus now. After all this time, I mean, there is a an absence of almost 30 years of information about the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we see Jesus coming to the water to meet John, he's now about 30 years old. And here's how Matthew describes it beginning in verse 13. Let's stand together as we honor the reading of God's holy word. This is the word of the Lord. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? 
But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, would you say it together with me, please? This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. And all God's people said, Father, thank you for the blessing of this very familiar passage of Scripture and for Christ who was willing to stand in a very real sense in our stead there as sinful people, him being without sin, he took his place being numbered with the transgressors, and we're grateful for his obedience that provides a wonderful example for us. Speak to us now very clearly, and may it change our hearts as the Spirit leads. In Jesus' name we pray, and everybody together said, amen. Thank you, church. You may be seated. There's some parts of Scripture I want to know more about, and one of those things is about the boyhood of Jesus. We don't have much in the Bible about that, aside from the birth of Jesus and the toddlerhood of Jesus, and there's not much even about that. We only have one vignette in Scripture, and it's given to us by the gospel writer Luke when Jesus was 12 years old. That's the only boyhood story of Jesus that we have, and so from the period of time when Jesus was 12 until about his 30th year, there is nothing but silence in the scriptural record. And yet, when it came time for Jesus to fulfill the mission that God had for him that would culminate, of course, in, with the cross and the empty tomb, when it was time to begin that public ministry, uh, it's interesting that Jesus makes that 60 to 70 mile track south from Nazareth in Galilee down to where John was conducting his ministry out in the wilderness of Judah. And he inaugurates, Jesus does, his public ministry with his own baptism. Now, I want you to notice with me this morning three things about this important beginning point in Jesus' life and ministry. Matthew signifies it here in verse 13 with three simple words that have formed the, the backdrop <clears throat> excuse me, of our series. He simply says, then Jesus came. And with that in mind, he gives us a picture of this particular event at the very beginning of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Three things we can know about it. One, at the beginning, Jesus, you'll notice, is obedient to his calling. So the first thing that marks the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ is absolute, complete, and total obedience. He's obedient to his calling. There are a number of things that because of the silence of the scriptural record, this side of heaven will never know about the life of Jesus. But one thing that we can know for sure about the early ministry of Jesus is that he was baptized. That he was baptized is without question. Uh, what most people raise as a question, knowing what we know about the identity of Jesus as the divine sinless Son of God, and knowing what we know about the kind of baptism that John was performing, this baptism that involved repentance of sin and confession of that sin and the need for forgiveness from sin, 
The question most people raise is, why was Jesus baptized? Nobody argues about that he was baptized, but we want to know why he was baptized. If he had no sin to confess, if he had no need for repentance, then why get in the water at all? Well, it's a good question, and it's a question that John had in his own mind. When Jesus came walking toward him, John pondered this very imponderable question. Um, and we know that because at first John was what? Standoffish, wasn't he? He was hesitant to baptize Jesus. A sinner like me baptizing someone I know who's sinless? That didn't make any sense to John the baptizer. And he says to Jesus here in verse 14, Brother, I need to be baptized by you. And yet you come to me? And Jesus' only response to him is one that's not altogether clear. It's a little bit fuzzy. He says in verse 15, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now scholars debate exactly what that means, uh, but basically the idea, I think, is complete and total obedience. Jesus wants to do everything necessary to fully, totally, completely obey the will and the plan of God for his life, particularly right here at what he knows is ground zero, this critical part of his life, the entire reason for which he had come to begin this three-year journey of public ministry where he personifies the gospel, preaches the gospel, and then demonstrates the gospel through his own death, burial, and resurrection. And so by submitting to baptism, Jesus is showing that he's totally committed to fully following the will of God for his life. And with that in mind, I think that we can arrive at three important conclusions as to why Jesus was baptized. The first thing you should notice is that in his baptism, Jesus identifies with the lost. Why was he baptized? Well, because his baptism was an identification with the people that he had come to save. When we baptize somebody today, they make a public identification, but their identification, your identification in the water is an identification with Jesus and his redemptive work. When Jesus stood in the water, he's identifying with you because you're the whole reason for his coming outside, of course, to glorify God by completely obeying God and providing a means of atonement for the forgiveness of sin, he came in order to seek and to save that which was lost. So there's a big difference between the baptism that John is performing to these predominantly Jewish masses there in the Jordan and the baptism of Jesus. They're not the same thing. When the people were baptized, they were identifying with God and with God's plan to save them, and they were agreeing with God. That's what confession is. Confession means agreement. And so kind of when you and I stand in the water to be baptized, we're making a public confession of sin, and that's an agreement with God. God, you're right. I've come to where you are. In your opinion of me, I agree with it. I am a sinner. I'm lost. So that's what these people were agreeing with when they were baptized, that they, they were sinners who needed to be cleansed from their, skin, from their sin. But when Jesus was baptized, he's making a different statement. He's making a different identification. Again, Jesus is identifying with you and with me and with the totality of the sinful humanity that he himself had come to save. Jesus didn't need to be baptized in a spiritual sense as we do. He had no sin. But Jesus had come in the role of the one who would bear sin. 
He would bear sin. He had come, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, God made Christ who had no sin to become sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Remember how the prophet Isaiah said it in his prophecy, Isaiah 53, that the one who was to come was numbered with the transgressors. He wasn't a transgressor, but he was numbered with the transgressors. And Isaiah goes on to say, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And that's what Jesus was doing in his baptism. In his baptism, Jesus is standing in our place. He's standing in our stead. In the same way that Jesus hung and died on the cross in your place, right? He didn't have any sin of his own to atone for at the cross. He was bearing your sin. And in the same way, y'all following me, say amen. When he stands in the water, he's identifying with the very sinful people that he had come to save. And so that's the first reason that he was baptized, to stand together with us, to demonstrate publicly, it's you that I've come for. And he stands there and identifies with the people whose sin he would one day bear. Second, in his baptism, Jesus not only identifies with sinners, secondly, he provides an example to the saved. In this way, Jesus becomes our model for obedience so that in baptism we follow his example we publicly identify with him in the same way that at the beginning of his ministry he publicly identified with us now don't forget at the end of Jesus's ministry fast forward ahead 24 chapters in Matthew's gospel and you'll come to Matthew chapter 28 and there, just before Jesus ascends to heaven, he gives us words that everybody in this room ought to know because we talk about that as much, if not more, than any other scripture. It's called the Great Commission. And there at the end of his ministry, when it's all said and done, Jesus gives a word to his disciples that involves baptism, and it comes in the form of a command. Go and make disciples of all nations. And then what are the next words out of his mouth? baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. See, that's Jesus validating the critical importance of baptism for every single one of his followers. Christ makes baptism central to the mission of his church. If a church never performs baptisms or shirks baptism, fails to teach baptism, minimizes the importance of baptism, they are turning their back on the very mission of the Lord Jesus Christ as defined by Christ himself. Baptism stands at the heart of the mission of the church. Baptism is not something that a bunch of church leaders got together and just made up. It's not a way to count heads. It's something God commands. And it's something that God commands every believer to do. And the important thing about the baptism of Christ is at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus showcases it. He brings it front and center. And I'm telling you, if he does it, you ought to sit up straight and take notice because if Jesus does it, it's important. Regardless of what the it is. And the fact that he does it makes it critically important to every person who would follow him as a disciple. 
So Jesus provides an example of baptism at the beginning of his ministry. Let me put it over here from your perspective. He gives us an example at the beginning of baptism. He gives us a command at the end of his ministry so that there's no way, shape, or form you can misunderstand the critical nature and importance of baptism to your life as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And with all of that in mind, let me tell you an important question to consider. Y'all still with me? Say amen. If Jesus submitted to baptism when he had no personal or spiritual need to do so, who among us deciding to follow Jesus could possibly refuse to be baptized? If the sinless Son of God got in the water to identify with you, who are you to refuse to get in the water and identify with him? If there's nothing else in the Bible about baptism but that Christ did it, that, my friend, is enough for me. If you want to be like Christ, you're going to do as Christ did. And he gives us a wonderful, not only a command, but a wonderful example to follow. And then I think a third reason Jesus was baptized was to illustrate the gospel. To illustrate the gospel. He's baptized to identify with the lost, to provide an example to the saved, to illustrate the gospel to all. The gospel, of course, means what? What does the gospel mean? Good news. Good news about what? Good news about our salvation in Christ. Not by anything we could do to earn it, but simply through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and our identification with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ by faith. And that's exactly what baptism by immersion pictures. Immersion is a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, something that was foreshadowed by Jesus. So Jesus is pointing ahead. When Jesus gets into the water of baptism, he's drawing a picture in a sense of what he'd come to do. He'd come to die, he'd come to be buried, and he had come to be raised to life victorious over sin and death. That's what Jesus foreshadowed when he was baptized. It's what we identify with publicly looking backwards now as you and I are baptized. So going under the water symbolizes the death and the burial of Jesus. Coming up out of the water symbolizes the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus' baptism was a visual about what would happen to him in the future. For those of us who follow Jesus in repentance and faith, our, baptize, uh, our baptism symbolizes what has happened to us. Namely, I have died to sin. My old life has been forever buried and separated from me, put away, and I've been raised now by faith and repentance of sin to walk in new and eternal life in Jesus Christ. So there are three very compelling reasons as to why Jesus was baptized, how his baptism differs from our baptism, and how his baptism points to uh, what is symbolized in our own baptism, even in the baptisms that we'll be doing a little bit later on today. So at the beginning in his baptism, Jesus demonstrates total obedience to his calling he uh, demonstrates publicly his commitment to what God had fully called him to do. Does that make sense? Everybody tracking with me, would you say amen? 
But then I want you to notice two very important symbolic acts that take place after Jesus or as Jesus was being baptized. The second thing about Jesus' uh, initial ministry here in his baptism is that he was anointed by the Spirit. In the beginning, Jesus is obedient to his calling. In the beginning, Jesus is anointed by the Spirit. That's found in verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Now, this is a pretty dramatic experience, pretty dramatic event in the life of Christ, and there's some question as to who could see what and who couldn't see what and who could hear what and who couldn't hear Matthew says here in his gospel that the heavens were opened to whom? To him, to Jesus. And he saw, who saw? Jesus saw the Spirit descend like a dove. And so the, the, the pronouns there are, are singular pronouns, which seems to imply, of course, that only Jesus could see this spiritual anointing that was taking place in his life Matthew and the other gospel writers are silent as to whether or not the crowd could actually see with their own eyes any way, shape, or form of what was happening. But regardless, what we do know for sure is that Jesus could see it. And what happens here is what we might call a spiritual anointing for Jesus' mission, uh, mission and ministry. We might call it a commissioning in some sense by God the Holy Spirit. It was anointing where Jesus was set apart and where Jesus was empowered for this redemptive work that he'd been sent by the Father to perform. Now, it comes in line in a, in a very real sense with many of the other anointings that you find in Scripture. In the Old Testament, for example, the kings of Israel uh, began their monarchies, their rule, their reign by being set apart in a symbolic way as chosen leader through an act that involved their being anointed publicly. And they were typically anointed with what? That's right, they were anointed with oil. That was kind of a symbolic action that communicated both a separation, and they were anointed, by the way, by a priest who stood as a representative for God the Father himself, but that act of anointing communicated separation, a uniqueness. This, this man among men was unique in a very real sense, chosen by God, and through the anointing, he's being consecrated, set apart, dedicated for a holy use as a vessel chosen by God. Well, what you have here in the baptism of Jesus is another kind of anointing in which the king of kings, hey, 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 the king of kings is anointed not with oil, but with God the Holy Spirit, who the Bible writers say descended on him like a what? Like a dove. Like a dove, uh, which means probably it wasn't a, like a literal dove that came fluttering out of heaven and landed on Jesus. Some visible experience of the Spirit that somehow represented the peaceful, peaceable nature of a dove. And isn't it interesting 
that Jesus wasn't anointed with a bird of prey like an eagle or a peregrine falcon, right? Which would have symbolized authority and, and power. No, it was a visible manifestation to him that resembled a dove. He was anointed gently in a way that symbolized peace, kind of in the way we think when we think of a dove. And Jesus would later say, be like me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your soul. Now, all of this should kind of be encouraging to you, especially the Holy Spirit part, because it shows how Jesus, who was fully human, as well as being fully God, and most of the time, most of us tend to major on Jesus as God in the flesh, and indeed he was, but he was also fully human. He got tired. He needed to go to bed. He got emotional. He cried. He got hungry. He ate supper. He was human in every respect. And unless you understand that, this anointing and this empowering by the Spirit won't make any sense at all. Because Jesus in his humanity, having emptied himself when he left heaven, divested himself of many of his attributes as God for a time as a human being to take on flesh, just like you and me desperately needed the power of the Holy Spirit to perform his mission. Listen, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was trying to find a way around the cross, humanity of Christ, and yet it was the Spirit empowering that caused Jesus to get up after having sweat drops of blood and continue that journey all the way to the cross. You read Luke's gospel, and Luke's got the Spirit all over Jesus in just about every chapter. He's anointed by the Spirit at his baptism. He's led by the Spirit into the temptation of the wilderness. He begins his ministry in Nazareth of Galilee, full of the Holy Spirit. He, brothers and sisters, is Christ in the Spirit of God, led by the Spirit of God. And that's why you see him being anointed by the Spirit of God right here at the very beginning of his ministry. He never gave up his divine nature. He was all God in every respect, but still fully human in every respect. You say, well, that's a mystery. Yeah, it pretty much is. You say, well, I, I can't really figure all that out. No, you pretty much can't. Clearly taught all throughout the Bible. And as fully human, Jesus, if you come back next week, you'll see this. Subject to temptation. I mean, apart from understanding the humanity of Jesus, chapter 4 of Matthew, where Jesus is tempted by the devil, doesn't make any sense. It's unnecessary in the Bible if Jesus is untemptable, but he was temptable in his humanity. And that's why he needed to be anointed by and filled with the very Spirit of God. And I'm just saying here this morning, if Jesus needed the same Holy Spirit power that we need, make no mistake, if you're going to live a life of full obedience, a life of victory as you follow Jesus, it is necessary that you stay filled with the Spirit of God because spirit life requires spirit power.
Walk by the Spirit, Paul says, and you will not fulfill the lust and the desires of the flesh. Y'all still tracking with me? Say amen. At the beginning, Jesus was obedient to his calling. At the beginning, Jesus was anointed by the Spirit. And then notice with me finally, at the beginning, Jesus is affirmed by the Father. He's affirmed by the Father. At Jesus' baptism, there was both sight and sound. It's like an IMAX movie. Somebody say amen. I mean, sense around sight, sense around sound. Not only did Jesus see an appearance of the Spirit, he also heard the voice of the Father. Verse 17, and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now, while we don't know if anybody other than Jesus saw that physical anointing of the Spirit in the form of a dove, uh, it seems pretty obvious to me that others in the crowd could hear the voice that was coming from heaven. Because Matthew says it in such a way as to all but indicate that. Matthew says, the voice said this, what? This is my beloved son. In him I am well pleased. It's almost like God is talking to the crowd, isn't it? And so for in whatever way, shape, or form that I can't explain here this morning, the, the crowd could, could hear that voice. And they may not have understood it at first, probably didn't, but they could sure hear it. And they knew that voice indicated something was different about this. Not only about that experience, but something was different about that man. This is my beloved son. And you'll remember those of you that have read ahead in Matthew know that by the time you get to Matthew 17, uh, Mark chapter 9 in his gospel, you have Jesus up on the Mount of Transfiguration and Jesus is transfigured before Peter, James, and John and that same voice comes booming out of the heaven. And it says the same thing near the midpoint of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is my beloved son. In him I am well pleased. And in the transfiguration account, there's an addendum. Listen to him. And so there's no question that at the central point of the gospel, when that voice came then, everybody, well, it was only three disciples up there, but they could, own, uh, they could all hear that voice. So it stands to reason that everybody in the crowd could hear that voice as well. And of course, the key word in this statement from the Father is the word son. Son. This is my beloved son. And so, whereas in the previous vision, you have the humanity of Jesus emphasized, and here in the voice, you have the deity of Jesus emphasized. This is my beloved son, the very one we know to be the divine son of God. In Trinitarian terms, we call Jesus God the Son. And that's affirmed by God the Father at the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry. It's something also that was obviously prophesied all throughout the Old Testament. Isaiah 42.1, for example, where Isaiah, as we learned just before last Christmas, is identifying this Messiah as the servant of God. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, and then 
in whom my soul, what? Say it out loud. Delights. And then notice what he says. I have put my what? My spirit upon him. Now, that hadn't happened yet when Isaiah prophesied it. But that's what you got going on right here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry as he's standing in the water with John. That voice communicates Isaiah's uh, verbiage. I delight in him. I am satisfied in him. I am well pleased with him. Every father in the room today, including this one, who has raised Christ-honoring, responsible, productive sons understands that language well. And fathers, if that's the way you feel about your son, would you do everybody in your family a favor and say it out loud? Would you tell them that? Every son in the room longs to be affirmed by his father. Longs to hear that their father's proud of them. Longs to hear that their father loves them. Some of you may be saying, well, my father never told me that. Yeah, but you wish he did. And you can break it. You can be different. And one of the things you need to do is tell your children, boy or girl, that they are your beloved child. And with them you are well pleased. Listen, I'm just saying this morning, God the Father didn't hold back the affirmation, and neither should you, and neither should I. You say, well, I don't want to spoil my, take the risk. Take the risk. I've never known an over-encouraged child in my life, but I've met many of them who were way under-encouraged and their mind and their heart and their emotional state showed it. So be like the Lord. Affirm those beloved children. And in the excitement here, don't miss the obvious illusion that God is Trinity. Did you notice that? Man, you got Father, Son, and Spirit all over the place here in this passage of Scripture. This is part of why with this and many other passages. This is why we believe in a Trinitarian, a triune God. Because you've got God the Son submitting to baptism. You have God the Holy Spirit descending from heaven to anoint and empower God the Son. And then you've got God the Father affirming His love and declaring His pleasure in the person of the Son. And that's one of the, you say, well, I don't understand that. Yeah. That's, that may be the great imponderable of Scripture, that one plus one plus one equals one, but yet it's clearly taught all over the Bible. And that reality is maybe most clearly seen in the baptism of Jesus. Now, the time is short, and we're going to take the Lord's Supper, but let me leave you today very quickly with four important takeaways as it relates to you personally from Jesus' experience and really from the larger two-Sunday teaching on John the Baptist. Y'all with me? Say amen. Here's what we got. First, if you haven't already, you need to repent of your sin and trust Jesus to save you. That's the first obvious takeaway. There is so, no salvation apart from repentance of sin and faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ as God the Son. Salvation is not automatic. 
Heaven is not automatic. You have to respond to God's call and you have to decide to follow Jesus. Have you ever noticed that, I, listen, I've been to a lot of funerals in my time. I've never been to a funeral where it was publicly proclaimed that the person who had died was going to hell. It's never happened. Everybody's going to heaven at their funeral. Have you all noticed that? There's a lot of lies told at funerals. I've never been to one where the person wasn't going to heaven. And yet the reality is, heaven's not automatic. You have to respond with repentance to the call of God to be saved. Two, if you're a person of faith, you need to follow Jesus in believer's baptism. Ought not ever be any such thing as a Christian who's publicly confessed Christ, but who refuses to be baptized in water. It needs to be a public sign of your new life in Christ. Anything else is disobedience to Christ. And then third, baptized believers should abide in a daily relationship with Christ. Live in the power and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit because spirit life requires spirit power. The Bible says, be filled with the Spirit and walk by the Spirit so as not to fulfill the desires of the flesh. And then finally, share the good news of Christ with others. That's the model of John the Baptist who pointed to Jesus Christ as the coming one. The only difference is we don't say the Lord is coming. We say joy to the world, the Lord what? Has come. That's right. But more to the point, telling others about Christ, like baptism is the command of Christ, who in that same great commission says, go and what? Make disciples of all nations. The point is God has saved us and then he's left us here as ambassadors for Christ with the message of reconciliation, which in the words of John can be summed up this way, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is God's word and all God's people said,